With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey everybody, it's your towel-wielding guide to the galaxy, Holden McNeely. Uh, I'm also a wizard, I guess. Wizards, don't <laughs> talk to me about wizards. <laughs> I, I can guess who... the size of a planet, <laughs> and you dare think that magic is real. The only magic is the sweet abyss that awaits us all. Bruiser Jake here to t- t- talk about the wobo wackiest book series in the history of comedy science fiction. <laughs> and today we, of course, have a guest, the lovely Jeff Sprawl, um, Giganto Hitchhiker's Guide fan, a creator of his own sci-fi comedy, which we'll, we'll plug as well. And uh, just uh, our our aficionado, because I think at the end of the day, as much as honestly, I've seen the movie, I read the first book, and I read the second book this week in preparation for this episode, preparation for this episode, but I still didn't feel like, like, we still felt, both of us, I think, that we needed a guy who's really read and seen and listened to it all. And that is why we brought in Jeff. Thank you for being here, buddy. Thank you guys so much for having me. I obviously I love the show and I'm very honored to be part of this. Yeah, how hard did you come your jeans oh, when I invited I you to be stopped. a part? Uh, <laughs> it's going on right now. It's a real so, pangalactic gargle blaster in those Lee denim. That's what I uh yeah, say to the wife when it's when it's about to happen is say, Here, get ready for a pangalactic gargle blaster. Did I remember right? So, There's so much gibberish. I'm scared that I'm gonna misquote and misremember it is a bunch so of things. So hard to say the words even just in my head as I read Barble Bla- yeah, Zarf Zaphod and Beeble Brocks and um, uh, yeah, the many different uh, ridiculous names wrought upon us by Mr. Douglas Adams, the creator of this whole 40 mess. years before Rick and Morty popularized just making up bullshit sci-fi names for comedic effect. Hey, everybody. Just also wanted to mention that today's episode is actually a Patreon-sponsored episode from Ben. Thank you so much, Ben, uh, for donating for this Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy episode. An absolute must and uh, as for what they want for a shout out, just tell Liz I love her. I love you, Liz. Thank you so much. Back to the show. <laughs> yes, we are here to talk about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the comedy science fiction series uh, created by Douglas Adams. And it's time to do the gush. I 
gonna make mine pretty brief. I definitely read the book in college. Maybe I read it in New York. I'm not sure. I read it later. I enjoyed it. Uh, I have. I, I feel like I struggle weirdly enough with comedy prose, comedy noveliza in novelization form. I'm much more of like of a visual sort of comic person, and uh, but I still felt that there was something special with this series. I also went and saw the film in the theater when it came out, and I really super enjoyed it. Actually, had a great time. I think it's a little more uneven upon a second viewing of that film. But there's so many funny parts. I mean, you just did the uh, Paranoid Android Marvin, and um, Alan Rickman just kills that in, in the film. He is just amazing as that part. But that's about it. I, I You know, my dad had all the books on his bookshelf. I remember being curious with the series. But uh, that's about as far as it goes. Uh, Jake, uh, what, do you, what is your relationship to all this? Uh, I picked up the first book right at the perfect time, which is uh, Eighth Grade where I'm just smart enough to realize that everything's bullshit, but just young enough to still think Monty Python is the height of comedy. So that's just <laughs> boom wheelhouse Perfect. right there. Perfect. Loved it. Uh, deeply affected me. Not to the point where I really kept up with the rest of the series, though, because I'm just, yeah. I think I've revealed enough my horrible shame, which is uh, I'm not a reader. He's Books. not much of a reader. One of them readers, Jeff. The letters hurt my eyes. They're just so <laughs> heavy. Um, there's just, I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's lots of other art forms where they just show you what you need to understand <laughs> instead of having to make your dumb brain do all the work. But I really appreciated its sense of humor. I enjoyed the philosophical edge of it. And, um, just as a side note, I don't know if we'll get into it, but when I was hanging out with another nerdy eighth grader, uh, Danny Blau, I believe his name was. Uh, there's no way you're listening to this, but hey, buddy. Still He's remember always like, I'm Danny Blau. I go, Blau, Blau, I'm Danny Blau. <laughs> uh, also the guy who got me hooked onto anime. So, you know, he has nice. a lot to uh, apologize for. <laughs> he had like these VHS tapes of bootlegs of the original BBC television show. And it was the so cheaply made and so BBC. Yeah. That like that weird, like horrible special effects, horrible makeup, but you're just, you just accept it as is because that entire country grew up on Doctor Who. So like, it's all like shitty and you have to let your imagination do the work. <laughs> it traumatized me. It was so awful. <laughs> Even though all the jokes are still there, it still like stands up now when you can kind of Suspend your disbelief, but I think Adams has even come out and said like he that he doesn't love that series of it's, all the incarnations. It's not good. I mean, it's it, <laughs> there's there's good, the good things about it are the uh, the computer effects. They did them all. Mm. They were all hand drawn uh, computer effects, and they added all these little details and they added actual entries to the guide that you would never be able to see in the first viewing. You'd have to go back and 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 pause it and uh, do whatever the you, 80s equivalent of frame advance would be. If and you really and, need to understand the cosmic horror that I experienced, just Google the phrase Zaphod BBC TV and see this the nightmare that is the prosthetic mannequin head that they just plastered onto this poor <laughs> actor. But enough about the shitty things. Uh, this is god-awful, Jake. Thank, <laughs> thank you for making me look at this. This is this looks like a hall, an old Hall of Presidents-like... No, this head. is like something they find in the unsubs dungeon in an episode of Criminal Minds. This yeah. is upsetting. A lot of it they put down to this guy Alan Bell, who was the uh, the 
director of it and uh, one of the producers, I believe. But uh, yeah, he was a TV guy. They were used to dealing with like radio people and going like mm. crazy and and uh, being able to like spend all day just trying to get one sound effect right. And this is very much like a, a BBC like, no, we're going to do this for as little money as possible. And we're going to do it on schedule. And this is the way it is. And I don't care mm. if the performances or anything else has to suffer. We have a schedule. We're going to keep to it. And so right. <laughs> a lot of the people involved with it kind of blame him for it. But <laughs> But regardless, Jeff, I'm dying to know what your relationship to this series is, because clearly you are a great lover of the series. When did you discover it? And um, just kind of what are the different versions of the UC? I didn't realize how many versions of this thing there truly are. So Yeah, I, I jumped way ahead in the timeline going to the, the TV series before I even <laughs> talked about why I like Hitchhiker's Guide to Go. <laughs> the, um, yeah, I also... Jake, I believe actually it was actually, it was it was eighth grade for me as well when I discovered it, and it was uh, my mother was was reading it. She had picked up um, Life, the Universe, and Everything, which was the third book in the series, and yes. and she had started reading it. And she was saying, "I think you'll really like this." And I started reading it, and I was like, "Yeah, this is this is fantastic. This is this is already like weird and funny, and it it feels like." something that I should definitely be reading. And then I realized, oh, wait, this is the third. You jumped into the third book and was like, no, no, we're not having this. So we went back <laughs> and I and I went and immediately bought like uh, um, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and the restaurant at the, at the end of the universe. And um, I was already trusting that I was going to love them. And I was not disappointed. And yeah, it was really, um, it felt like a perfect time for me to discover the book series because it, there's something about the books that it feels like, like it speaks to somebody who doesn't feel like they they fit in. It speaks to somebody who doesn't feel like like they're uh, getting the joke all the time, or that they're uh, that, that other people are having more fun than them, or that there's there's this whole <laughs> oh dude you other nailed, interesting sorry <laughs> you're nailing it so hard holy shit <laughs> <laughs> well that's what it was because like Arthur Dent is like such a just like outsider with everything even when he like returns to earth in the fourth book. He's an outsider then too, because he's all, now he has all this, <laughs> these experiences that have happened in the, um, in the rest of the galaxy. And he's come right. back to this sort of like clone of earth and, and he's still the outsider. And it just, um, uh, I feel like Douglas Adams really captures that. And it's really funny, but there's something kind of, is this something ever so slightly sad under the surface and lonely about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which really mm-hmm. always really spoke to me and made me feel maybe less alone. Or a little nihilistic, like almost gleefully nihilistic in a way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think also what I love about it that I realize is like it just it speaks with such an authority about this ridiculous fictional r- reality that is in certain ways hilariously based on real science. But it's just how I just feel like it it makes you feel that I think there's this really cool quote that I'll say later on from Stephen Fry about how it really feels like it's speaking directly to you. And also, though, it really feels like it is an authority on what the true nature of the universe is and all this amazing, fantastical stuff. And it just to the point where you're just like, yeah, okay, you just you just fall into the world so seamlessly, I feel like there's a specific kind of person that like in sixth or seventh grade just is casually told that we are all just insignificant beings on a rock or like orbiting around a fireball. It's literally the introduction of the first book is, you know, uh, an insignificant rock uh, orbiting 93 mile, million miles away from a giant fireball and in an infinite void of, of chaos 
And like, you're just supposed to like, now next week we're doing long division. Like it's insane. And the innate cosmic absurdity of that is kind of fully explored within these books in a way that is engaging. Uh, A lot of the things that uh, besides a weirdly angry tone towards digital watches, which in the seventies were very inefficient. They made noises. They ran through battery very quickly. Uh, You know, Douglas Adams was not talking about your modern day Casio, but besides the weird vendetta against digital watches, a lot of the observational stuff really, really holds up. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Definitely rereading it and checking it out again. It's it's our nightmares. Well, you were even saying, and he actually does call out Kurt Vonnegut as one of his favorite authors. He said he read Sirens of Titan, Douglas Adams, that is like several, several times. He loved it so much. And um, you were saying about um, during that episode how it was one of those rough episodes where, you know, you're just like, ugh, everything this guy was saying was, turned out to totally be true and, like, way worse than he even thought. And, uh, yeah, you, you get a sense of that with, with Adams's work as well. It's the tragedy that, like, A, he was right, B, millions of people... Uh, like read his work and agreed and see it still didn't matter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, for God's sakes, the opening, uh, when we're introduced to Zaphod, uh, Beeble Brox, when he's, uh, stealing the heart of gold and they just go into the nature of how the power of the president like is manifest in reality. It, it was, it's might as well be like, he might as well be talking about today. It has yeah. not changed at all. It has gotten worse. The real job of the president is to distract uh, is to, to draw attention away from the power as opposed to yes. actually yeah. wield the power. 100%. 100%. That, that Zaphod's uh, capacity as a distraction makes him the greatest yeah. president the galaxy <laughs> has ever had. So, Jeff, you, you, read, you read the first book, and that leads to reading all the rest of the series and listening to the radio show a few times as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was, what was that, through, like, college, high school? Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's been, like, pretty much... My whole life. I mean, I actually re-listened to the radio series just like uh, like like going to the gym or something like 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 uh, in the last couple of years, just having the uh, the audio books of that and, and listening to Hell that. Yeah. I've read the books so many times now. I actually kind of like lost count, and I I've it's actually been now been a couple of years. I kind of stopped. I was like, okay. I can quote this entire thing. <laughs> now, there are other books, apparently. There's other things, books out there that, that people read, and some of them are pretty good. So, uh. and What do you think it is that ha- keeps you returning to it? What do you think it is that that it make, that you love so much about it? it? It it really comes down, I think, to that, uh, that, that initial feeling that I had in, in eighth grade, where it's like somebody kind of understands what I feel like and sort of like understand and makes me feel like other people feel this way too. And, and is making me laugh at, at things, um, that, that I wouldn't have, <laughs> I wouldn't have thought were funny. Like, um, right. There's and, and even thing adding things like is how he adds like bureaucracy and pettiness to, to science fiction to, uh, you know, to like, the, like to the end of the world. Yeah. To, like everybody you know. kind of, <laughs> People like represent like the Vogons, like they they just represent yes. like like humorless gov- bureaucrats yes, in their bureaucrats, most like, like form, like government work, like miserable government workers who just like yeah. uh, that literally just don't know how to have fun, uh, even if they yeah. tried. Yeah, and even when they try to write, they be artistic and they, they write their poetry. It ends up being like, it's the worst horrendous. Thing yeah, it's yeah. just ab- an absolute nightmare. Absolutely awesome. Well, I I mean, hey, we've we've gushed 
quite a bit. I, I'm going to just go ahead and say, like, this is how little I knew about this. I thought the books came first, which is so funny. Like, I had no idea this was a hit BBC radio show. Let's talk about it. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, a comedy science fiction series created by Douglas Adams, which was initially a radio comedy broadcast on British radio, which was adapted into stage shows, novels, comic books, a TV series, a terrible text adventure video game, and a feature film in 2005. To be fair, Holden, it's considered one of the great text adventure video games. It's just that, as I learned firsthand, the genre itself is a nightmare prison from which only the most depraved and maniacal weirdos could ever draw joy from. And he he purposely made it an asshole. Like he, the whole point was he wanted to make you want to rip your hair out trying to beat it without a guide or anything. So the the general synopsis is it is a story of the last surviving man named Arthur Dent who was rescued from Earth by a man named Ford Prefect, who is the author of A Travel Guide to the Galaxy, and the two explore said galaxy together, meeting folks like the two-headed president of the galaxy named Zaphod Beeblebrox and a depressed paranoid android named Marvin. You also have Trillian. I should mention her as well, the last surviving female. Don't worry, you just gave Trillian as much thought as Douglas Adams <laughs> So let's talk about Douglas Adams, uh, because this all spawned from the brain of that man born in 1952 in the University of uh, City of Cambridge, England, though his family would end up moving to the east end of London not long after his birth. His parents divorced when he was five years old, and his mother moved them to an animal shelter in Essex as it was run by their grandparents. It should be noted that his dad was a loudmouth, a braggart, a drunk, and a serial cheater, and Mm. uh, that's what kind of uh, split the family apart. But luckily, his dad then later remarried into money. So that was very clutch for young Douglas Adams. (laughs) That's good, at least. Uh, Yeah, he went to Primrose Hill Primary School and later the boarding school Brentwood School. He was six feet tall. That's a very important fact about him. And uh, he was six feet tall at just 12 years old and would eventually reach six foot five, which definitely made him stand out, which was a thing he did not quite enjoy. I know Neil Gaiman talked about meeting him for an interview. They became friends. Neil Gaiman loves Douglas Adams. I love reading Neil Gaiman's words about Douglas Adams. Check out our episode on Neil Gaiman, by the way. We did that a very long time ago. And he was talking about how he thought he was going to meet this like classy Oxford-type guy that was going to come in. And instead, he was just very clumsy, would bump into things a lot. He would br- sit on things and break them. Um, <laughs> you know, he was just kind of an oafish, uh, goofy dude, essentially. What was the name of the boarding school he went to? Underwood? Brentwood? Brentwood. Brentwood. Uh, I found a, uh, a excerpt from the old school newspaper at Brentwood where, uh, a young Douglas Adams, uh, had to apologize to the choir club for having, uh, completely spaced out on writing an article about their concert to which he humbly apologized. So already missing deadlines already. Yes. Already a bit of a late, uh, uh, a procrastinator. He would become very famous for missing deadlines. <laughs> and I think one thing you should know about him, we could just go ahead and say up top, he really fell ass backwards into being this best-selling novelist thing. He kind of hated writing books. Like that's just <laughs> not really what his cup of tea at the end of the day. And uh, so it's really hilarious. And I think that attributes a lot to him missing a lot of deadlines. Can I read a quote from him about writing? Actually, yes. one of my favorite quotes, writing comes easy. All you have to do is stare at a blank piece of paper until your forehead bleeds, <laughs> which anybody who's ever really <laughs> struggled Yes. Getting something on page will understand that right away. A hundred percent. 
Yeah, he became known for writing stories at schools and was the only student to get a 10 out of 10 in creative writing by his master at the time of the, at the school, Frank Halford. He published his earliest writing in the local news publications, such as a report on the school's photography club in the Brent Wardian and spoof reviews in the school magazine Broadsheet. He was awarded a scholarship to, to study English at St. John's College from writing an essay on religious poetry. And while there, he desperately wanted to be a member of the Footlights. The Footlights is like our Groundlings or Second City or something like that. I it compare it more to uh, uh, Harvard National Lampoon. Yeah, it's, it's actually like it's this, more like that. If Because uh, we have to understand this is like around uh, the late 60s, I'd say. So, I don't know, Beatles uh, and most importantly for comedy nerds, Monty Python. Yeah. And so the footlights was, you know, if you wanted to be the next John Cleese, uh, you had to and be part of the footlights, which was kind of a variety uh, uh, theater club at what, Cambridge. Yes. And it makes a lot of sense that he specifically did want to be the next John Cleese. He first saw John Cleese uh, on TV in the Frost Report. And before that, he had he had thought about maybe wanting to become an astrophysicist and this and that and just wasn't, I think, good enough at math and saw John Cleese on the Frost Report and was like, oh, that's what I want to do. And so, of course, he chased that directly. And later in life, he becomes friends with John Cleese. And like, again, going back to a Neil Gaiman piece that I read, he uh, talked about how like when he went to interview him, he took a phone call with John Cleese and like. He was like a little boy about it. He was just like, "That was John Cleese." I just, I just had a business business conversation with John Cleese. <laughs> he like, met he met Monty Python through uh, through uh, Graham Chapman actually. And yes. Then, yeah. Then he became friends with all of them. It's the most universal experience within anybody in comedy to be a little kid who's not very good at anything to finally randomly on TV see someone with your same awkward body type yeah. be famous for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> in uh, Douglas Adams' case, it was because John Cleese is also very tall. In my case, it was Louis Anderson because he's a big, fat slob. <laughs> you know, it's all... Yeah, yeah. For me, it was Reptile, of course, from <laughs> Mortal Kombat series. Uh, so he ends up... This The Footlights is an invitation-only comedy club, and I really resonate with this. He definitely was rejected at first and not allowed in and he ends up going off with a couple of friends uh his buddies will adams no relation and martin smith and they create a comedy group called adams smith adams and that gets popular enough and eventually they he becomes a member of the footlights in 1973 after school he goes back to london and he's trying to break into tv and radio as a writer and uh, a live review that he performed in London's West End caught the eye of a man that Jeff just mentioned, Graham Chapman, a member, of course, of Monty Python. And the two formed a short-lived writing partnership. And this was really, this he really thought, and again, I so resonate with this. He was like, everything's going to work out. I'm in with the Pythons. We're going to be good to go. I'm working with this guy. And he does get a writing credit on an episode of Monty Python's Flying Circus for a sketch called Patient Abuse. And he made two brief appearances on the show's fourth season. However, he hits a bit of a wall after this. And he's just having a difficult time getting his writing style over for television and radio. He's he's And, and now he's working a bunch of odd jobs, most notably uh, as a bodyguard for a rich Qatari family. It was like this oil magnate, which is hilarious. But he also worked as a hospital porter, barn builder, chicken shed cleaner. Just just really hitting hitting a difficult patch in his life. He's 
24 years old, I believe. He's like, my career is over. I've got nothing going on. He does write and perform uh, a show uh, called Unpleasantness at Brody's Close, uh, which runs at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And that was a good gig for him for a bit. But then again, it just kind of dries up again after that. And the struggle continues. Adam said, I have terrible periods of lack of confidence. I briefly did therapy. But after a while, I realized it was like a farmer complaining about the weather. You can't fix the weather. You just have to get on with it, <laughs> which is such a Hitchhiker's Guide sit to me. <laughs> and so, yeah, he ends up doing some radio work on sketch comedy shows like The Burkis Way and The News Hudlines and co-wrote an episode with Graham Chapman of Doctor on the Go, which was a comedy TV show. And it's around this point that we finally get to the genesis of Hitchhiker's Guide as a radio show. Adam said, My pet project was to write something that would combine comedy and science fiction, and it was this obsession that drove me into deep debt and despair. No one was interested except finally one man. And that man's name is producer Simon Brett at BBC Radio 4, uh, and he takes him on to do this Hitchhiker's Guide uh, sci-fi radio series in 1977, but it wouldn't be Hitchhiker's Guide at first. That's true. I actually, um, I was, I also want to mention, uh, this guy, John Lloyd is actually a guy who was a, a roommate of, um, of Douglas Adams yes. that, uh, I think he, and he was a, a radio producer like Simon Brett. And I think that's how the introduction got ah. put together actually, because they were both, uh, they were the junior radio producers in their group and they, um, uh, yeah, they met through John Lloyd who actually has, who actually keeps popping up in a lot of, uh, other Hitchhiker's guy's stories. He and Douglas Adams are uh, were pretty good, like lifelong friends. It sounds like. Was that the article that someone sent us about how um, how much of a drinker Douglas Adams was? We should also establish that Douglas Adams huge lush, and that's actually oh. going to come into play when it comes to creating. We're about to talk about how he came up with this Hitchhiker's Guide concept. And you guys, this is a real exclusive. This story has never been shared. Before. <laughs> yeah, I've never read or heard this story, but seventeen times. While while uh, doing this research, but yeah, Adams pitches to the producer Simon Brett at BBC, BBC Radio Four Hitchhiker's Guide initially, though, as a concept for a sci-fi radio series in 1977 that would be essentially about uh, the world ending. It was initially called Ends of the Earth, and every episode would end in the world being destroyed. The first episode had the world being destroyed to make way for a new hyperspace express route. Sound familiar? And he needed a character to explain to the reader what was going on. And that's how Ford Prefect comes into play. But the reason for that actually goes back several years before. He was hitchhiking through Europe. He tells this hilarious story about how he was trying to ask for directions. He walks up to this guy and he's deaf. And he's like trying to communicate with him and get directions. And the guy can't give him directions. So then he's walking around this town. He's in Innsbruck, this small town. He finds another guy. He tries to get directions. The guy's also deaf. Then he goes to another guy a little bit further down, and he's deaf. And then he was like, if I had not turned the corner and discovered that there was actually a convention for the deaf happening at this hotel nearby, I would have probably ended up being some kind of Franz Kafka type writer. <laughs> but because I did discover that, I then just, he drunkenly saunters into a field, lays on his back, and he's got this um, Hitchhiker's Guide to Europe, and he thinks to himself, someone should write a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and then he falls asleep, forgets about it for, th for about six years, and remembers it as he's working on this episode of, uh, of Ends of the Earth. 
And that's when the whole idea starts to change. Ford Prefect comes in, and Adam suddenly realizes he would be a researcher for the Hitchhiker's Guide, which is why he knows so much. And of, I didn't know this. Ford Prefect, I, I also thought that Prefect was a joke about being perfect, but it's actually the name of a British car company. And the whole concept is that Ford Prefect is actually uh, a guy, uh, an alien who just did not do enough research before landing on Earth. He was like, I just need the most generic person's name. Kind of like Arthur Dent is a super <laughs> generic person's name. Or like, you know, he wanted like a Bill Smith alias name, right? Like very low key, very normal. But he just did like such little research. He ends up going with two car company names, which gives him like the weirdest name ever to have for um, a space alien. Yeah, it's kind of amazing just what is born from just the ether. The fact is, he was, uh, yeah, he was in Austria. And I don't, I don't, yeah, I know, I understand the school system in Britain is a little bit different. But like, yeah, he was taking a year off before going to college. So he was a teenager Mm -hmm. Just on his own hitchhiking in a foreign country without having real understanding of the language and just like getting drunk, skipping meals and just like kind of living that uh, bohemian lifestyle. Living la vida loca, baby. (laughs) And the idea of kind of this, the hitchhiker's guide being obviously the, the comparison to Wikipedia, this this folk punk version of an established state institution kind of being more useful than actual references and resources that would traditionally be to learn about a place. Uh, it works so well. It kind of, yeah, the, the universe caught up to him with that idea. Yeah, absolutely. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So the stuff is starting to come together. Simon Brett ends up actually getting replaced by a, name na- by a man named Jeffrey Perkins, who said, Douglas Adams knew from the start that he wanted to do something very different with the sound of the show. He wanted to apply the kind of production techniques used on, say, a Pink Floyd album to a radio show. And Adams said, reports that Jeffrey and I and the sound engineers were buried in a subterranean studio for weeks on end, taking as long to produce a single sound effect as other people took to produce an entire series and stealing everybody else's studio time in which to do so, we're all vigorously denied, but absolutely true. And that leads me to my question as someone who, you listened to the radio series recently, Jake. You've listened to it in the past. Jeff, do you guys really hear that up, that that jump up in production? Yes, with the full knowledge that you know they're doing everything analog at the time, it is impressive, and the sound direction, the special effects, really does elevate the radio series above what is essentially a lot of just old-timey radio sketches. 
You know, it's usually two or three people in a room kind of expanding upon a very clever idea. And then they kind of move on to the next scene, which then has its own joke to kind of work through. Uh, everything from the Vogon space, Vorgon, Vogon, Vogon, yep, Vogon spaceship <laughs> to the incredible uh, unveiling of the story behind Deep Thought really does. It's a very effective radio play in a way that feels a lot different than what would have been like. Hey, how do you do, sir? Like twenty three skidoo. Which way to the mailman? And I, I feel like Jeff, you, you've. You are drawn to radio radio play type stuff, I think, in the past, right? I think a lot of we we should mention Jeff is a run, runs a theater company and and um, made a movie, and it all harkens back to that time. I think in media, a lot of the material you've created was the radio show. Something you listened to after you read the books, and like, what was the impact there? Yeah, it was after I'd read the books. Then I then I found out, because I, I started off like you, I assumed the books came first, and then I realized, oh, there's this whole radio thing about it. <laughs> and uh, I I think I asked for them for Christmas, like the complete series of, of tapes. And uh, I uh, I got that, and yeah, within like, within like two days, I'd like listen to the entire thing, and then I listened to them <laughs> again. And it was really... I mean, I was, I was listening to him like an old like Sony Walkman, and just the sound quality of just coming out of old, you know, <laughs> those old speakers uh, uh, and those old um, headphones just sounded unlike anything I'd ever heard before. And it this it was this very exciting, and they really did fill the world up with um, with all these exciting like alien sounds, but there were also, there, there was like a little bit of silliness to them too. And uh, not like in a big, uh, like a cheesy, like, you know, wah, wah, kind of way, but just sort of like there's uh, just some of like the, the little ping noises This sounded, you know, kind of, kind of funny. This, it helped set the tone for, for a certain scene. Which makes sense that they would t- t- spend so much time Apparently, Douglas Adams, for as deadline skipping as he is and all these sorts of things, is very much a perfectionist and was very much so in the radio studio and was not bullshitting when he talked about like spending way too long on one sound effect. I think in terms of story, obviously, because the book has so much more room to operate, the book kind of delivers a more satisfying product in terms of the kind of thing that makes an eighth grader kind of lean back in their sofa and go like, wow. Mm -hmm. But the radio series is incredibly enjoyable. The jokes land hard. The cast is very good. Stephen Moore is amazing. Uh, He really is incredible. They even like released disco, like hit songs with Stephen doing the voice behind it. Uh, Mary, if you can just pipe in a little bit of that, because I feel like that captures the essence. I'm just a robot and I know my place. A metal servant to the human race I work my can off trying to satisfy I know they'll disconnect me by and by Just a wonderful, not quite a hit from the minds of uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And, oh my god, can we, can we can we talk about Journey of the Sorcerer? <laughs> Can we talk about Journey of the Fucking Sorcerer? That song carries this show so well. It is incredible how thematically perfect it encapsulates the entire vibe. What? How does it go? Do you, can you give us a little? Dun, 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 dun. No, 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 wait. We have access to producers. We are a real <laughs> professional show. Mary, play the cool part from Journey of the Sorcerer.
Beatles instrumental song that like has all this. It's first of all, it's called Journey of the Sorcerer. So already it's for nerds. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just this beautiful, haunting, uh, it sounds like a Star Wars theme already with all this epic scope, but it has this plucky banjo as the backbone of it. So it kind of carries that rambling man, folksy, hitchhike uh, kind of energy to it. And it just, from the beginning of each episode to when it chimes in at the end of each episode, it's it's so good. It is used so effectively in the radio show. It comes back in the TV show. It comes back in the movie. It, I can't think of this. I never listened to the radio show before this, and I didn't remember the song before uh, we did the research this week. And now I, I cannot remove Journey of the Sorcerer from the experience of uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It is so fucking awesome. And you can get high with your dad while listening to it. <laughs> I, uh, I love this quote from Adams about just going into this whole thing because because it really was unheard of before it was new ground and it's because this is how we felt about creating product people don't like to have their intelligence insulted if you do something with sufficient enthusiasm and put enough into it people are bound to respond unless your judgment is totally cockeyed i thought what would i really like to hear what would excite me well let's write it because nobody else is doing anything that excites me apart from the pythons if the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy makes money i shall enjoy that but what i'll most enjoy most is having proved that you don't have to underestimate people. I don't like the notion that you ha- you set yourself up as saying, this is what people like, therefore this is what we'll do. That's patronizing. And as a person who has pitched projects and stuff before, I have to constantly remind myself not to get bent out of shape about what do the producers or the executives of this studio want? What do, the, what do I think cynically the audience wants and just create something for me? Adams d- did recognize, though, that what he was doing was groundbreaking. He said, I felt that myself and the other people working on it all created something that really felt groundbreaking at the time. Or rather, it felt like we were completely mad at the time. And according to Perkins, Adams had a ton of ideas, but no actual notion of how the thing would end. The whole thing was done episodically. So he just was concerned about getting that next episode out. The original radio show was six episodes. And all, all he cared about was just getting that next episode done. He had no understanding of where anything would go. So it's pretty amazing that it would wrap up so well. Also, Marvin was supposed to be like a one-off joke. And to me, honestly, especially rewatching the movie, I think he's the funniest thing about the movie, at least. Like, he, that is, like, I can't imagine Hitchhiker's Guide without Marvin being, like, a major part of it. And uh, I, I meant to go look this up, but, I mean, that's how Radiohead got their album name, right? Paranoid Android? Yeah. Probably. I, I meant to sense. confirm it before this, but I'm pretty sure that's where Paranoid Android come, came from. Uh, but either way, the radio show has Arthur Dent, the Bulldozer, the Earth-Destroying Vogons, uh, Ford Prefect, Beeblebrox, Trillian, Marvin, and the number 42 being the meaning of life. And it also contained the importance of ta- towels as, quote, the most massively useful thing an interstellar hitchhiker can have. This idea actually came from Adams while uh, in Greece on vacay. He said, I was vacationing with friends in Greece some years back. Every morning, they'd have to sit around and wait for me because I couldn't find my blessed towel. I came to feel that someone really together, one who was well-organized, would always know where his towel is. Just bizarre. Like That's why you get these weird... They seem so random because they're definitely just based on this like drunkard... European travelers, just shenanigans across the country. 
uh, it's all tied into like heavy science thought and stuff like that because he was a big sci-fi guy. And he he was at least he was a big sci-fi guy that but only the type of sci-fi that like Vonnegut wrote. Not the type of sci-fi he talks about. Like he doesn't like just people in spaceships shooting lasers at each other. But anytime it essentially would take the lens and put it on the the on society, it would, it had something to say that was like more meaningful and played more in concepts and things like that and allegory. That was the kind of sci-fi that he really enjoyed. It was kind of a blessing that uh, you know for someone who was so influenced by Monty Python and for someone for an era that was so soaked in Python-style humor that he was finally able to kind of go for it through science fiction because that was like one of the only things that the Pythons really didn't like have their own spin on. You know, most of the standard sci-fi action stuff that happens in the series are always completely subverted. I love um, the weird little side anecdote, which is in the radio show and the book that, uh, you know, Arthur Dent's uh, random, a random phrase of his gets pulled through a wormhole and summons thousands of battleships towards planet Earth, where, unfortunately, due to a, a scaling error, uh, they are promptly swallowed by a dog. <laughs> the Gagagvins uh, and the Volkhergs. <laughs> oh, my God, you nerd. I love it. <laughs> also, uh, it should be noted, his friend John Lloyd, who Jeff brought up a little while ago, he co-wrote the final two episodes of the radio show broadcast back in March of 1978. He co-wrote those with Adams. A seventh episode was referred to as the Christmas episode, even though it doesn't have any references to Christmas. It was just aired on Christmas Eve. It was recorded later that year as a bonus app, essentially. Now is essentially the first, what is it called? The the first cycle or... Secondary phase? The, the, yeah, what, either way. The, the series ends up being a runaway hit. It wins awards. It was the only radio show ever to be nominated for the Hugo Science, Fic- Science Fiction Award, and it, it was nominated in the Dramatic Presentation category. And it just is way more successful than Adams even thought it would be. What's funny about that, saying that, though, is not really paying well. That's not really a high-paying gig. So, bizarrely enough, when he's hit up about writing a book, he's actually writing and script editing for the TV series Doctor Who, in order to make ends meet, uh, and uh, yeah, he's he's kind of he's not struggling. I mean, he's got decent employment, but still, he's not well, this like Doctor Who. Uh, this being the story editor for Doctor Who was actually an incredibly laborious role at the time. I one of, one of the many YouTube documentaries I watched about Douglas Adams uh, said that the work entailed like writers would just give you give the story editor a four page treatment and then just mm. be like, all right, write it up. Oh god! And it was up to the story editor to actually make the whole hour, or I don't know how long a Doctor Who episode back then was, but uh, it was apparently a very good era for Doctor Who. I know nothing about anything before the Tom reboot. Baker years. Yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. They were uh, the reason. Incidentally, the reason why he he co-wrote those last two uh, episodes of the first series of uh, of Hitchhikers with John Lloyd is because he was doing because he needed help because he was just drowning in work. And uh, I think the book thing was starting to happen, and uh, I know he was working on Doctor Who at the same time, and that's why uh, he needed to do a list to help with his friends. But yeah, uh, the Doctor Who years at that point was that was Tom Baker, who was I'd say arguably probably the the favorite 
Doctor Who until like this, you know, the the modern eras come along and you get like your David. And Tennant then Christopher and Eccleston was like, "Get fucked! I'm Scottish." <laughs> <laughs> that was still better acting than his than uh, his performance as Malekith in Thor: The Dark World. <laughs> so the English publisher Pan Books approaches Douglas Adams to commission a book based on the series. Adams said, "After a lot of procrastination and hiding, and inventing excuses and having baths, I managed to get about two thirds of it done." And he had already passed at that point the deadline, uh, uh, rather, he had already passed 10 deadlines at that point. Adam says, and this is the famous quote of, from Douglas Adams that you've probably heard before. I love deadlines. I love the whooshing sound they make as they go by. And he was just notorious for doing that over and over. They finally just said, finish the pager on. And literally sent someone on a motorbike to pick it up, just what he had, to just get it, get it out. The, the first book covers the first four episodes of the radio series. However, it does diverge from the source material. And you're going to get this time and time again with the movie, with everything. He's always, every time he's like redoing it for a different format, he's changing things. He's, he's d- doing different things with characters. He said some of the characters behaved in entirely different ways and others behaved in exactly the same way, but for entirely different reasons, which amounts to the same thing, but saves rewriting the dialogue. <laughs> so. Uh, so uh, this thing is huge. By 1984, one million copies were sold, and it had been translated into Dutch, German, Hebrew, Finnish, French, and Swedish. It is just this massive, massive hit for him. It's kind of an amazing thing that, like, because the radio show was pretty popular, but it was still a BBC program. You know, yeah. there weren't sponsors, there weren't royalties, there weren't anything like that. So it was just kind of this vague feeling in the air that, like, oh, I guess this thing is kind of popular, I don't know. And then when it finally gets published and it's on the bestseller list and selling hundreds of thousands of copies, it just completely changes his entire paradigm. It just, you know, it, it's like uh, it's like all of a sudden all this amorphous love for the franchise just gets solidified in a solid form. And if I, if I remember correctly, I think the BBC turned down an offer to publish a novelization version. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, they did. <laughs> and then they were mad about it later on. They were like, why didn't you offer it to us? <laughs> <laughs> so the, uh, the, the returns to the radio sh- series, five new episodes released on BBC radio Four. this time to huge fanfare. Now everybody knows about, it. they're like advertising it big. It's, it's a big part of their network now. And one reporter noted in this new series that we can like actually just see Adam's life, how it has completely changed from the first uh, set of episodes to the second, because the second or the first episode is dealing a lot with being broke and struggling financially. The second episode is about fancy restaurants (laughs) and accountants and like all this kind of thing. But it's all hilarious. Uh, the second book, which of course is titled The Restaurant at the End of the Universe, that is based on the radio fits, as they're called, by the way. They're, they're called fits. Uh, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 5, and 6 in that order, which is why I named them all out like that. And that book is published in 1980 and is as successful as the first book. That's the book I read this week in preparation for the episode, and I loved it. Fantastic, and just continues the story so well. There's so many insane, wonderful concepts. Of course, namely the the titular concept of this restaurant at the end of the universe, where you get to go and watch the the universe end. Because in my head, I was like, oh, it's a restaurant at the edge of the universe, like the expanding universe, right? But no, no, no. 
you're going to a restaurant essentially in time. You're going to a restaurant that that you sit in and and like New Year's Eve or something, enjoy the universe as you know it completely disappear. And that the way he lays all of that down, the way he talks about time, the way he talks about the the guy who wrote the book about the different tenses one must use, how there's like thousands of different tenses depending on what type of time you're in and where you're traveling to at that time and all this kind of stuff. It's just so much fun. And I think that that's where, like, I really enjoy the colorful characters. I really enjoy the witty dialogue. But I think it is the way that he hilariously communicates concepts in science fiction is what really, really draws me in. When he just says, let me, he's got like, sit down. Let me, let me lay this out for you about how, how the universe works in this circusy way. And it's just so much fun. Uh, Jeff, what would you say are kind of some of the big distinctions between the story from the radio series versus the story in the books? Like, what are some things that stand out to you that differentiate them? Well, the the, the um, fit, fit the second the the second series of of, uh, of the um, radio series diverges quite a bit. There's definitely elements that make its way into um, some of the books, but like, there's a whole big sequence. That takes place over over several episodes where they're like on this this planet that uh, the, the people have evolved into birds because of something called the uh, <laughs> yes. uh, the, the 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 shoe store <laughs> yeah the shoe store where they have the shoe store apocalypse or something at the top of this like mountain or whatever and then it's just more and more shoe stores so the shoes are just getting worse and worse and people have to keep buying them more often because. Uh, they keep, you know, the shoes are so shitty. It was such a crazy. It's amazing, and then they and they condense that entire like 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 four episode arc into like like a couple of quick paragraphs yes. <laughs> in in the uh, thing where they're just explaining the word that the the world that they're on, which I believe is where they have the the total perspective vortex, which yes. is this this thing that that shows you your relevance, like you know, like 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 like. To the universe, there's you like, a, like essentially see all of the universe yeah. all at once and your respective place in it, and it just apparently would make you completely go insane and destroy you, like the very soul of you. Yeah, it's a microscopic dot within a microscopic dot. They say, and and it says, <laughs> this says you are here, <laughs> and and that that destroys people's minds. But yeah, so that was like a big difference. Um, but then there were there were some other. Um, elements that did make it into the restaurant at the end of the universe but i'd say for the most part yeah it did they, it did feel like the second series def- definitely did feel a lot more disconnected from the book from the restaurant at the at the end of the universe than the first fit did uh, a feeling like hitchhiker's guide yeah 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 in the first primary phase of the radio show they get into the restaurant at the end of the universe mm, oh, that's right and uh the prophet, the great prophet Zarquan was. I, I I burst out laughing at that point. <laughs> it was something like, "Hey guys, sorry I'm late." Oh no! Yes, <laughs> brilliant. It's the return of the great prophet Zarquan. There's all these followers there who keep believing that he's going to show up one day, and they're kind of making fun of him. And the host is giving him shit too, which is so funny. He's like, "Where's your guy? He's not here, is he?" Ah, universe about it. And at the literal like last minute of the of the universe, he pops in and goes, "Yo, I'm sorry." I'll- Kinds of things popping up the last minute, and he says, uh, <laughs> "So," and then the universe ends, and he disappears. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Um, and now this is where we get to the BBC series. We already talked about it a little bit. They broadcast six television episodes. 
based on the first six episodes of the radio series. It should be noted that Arthur Dent, Zaphod, and the voice of The Guide were played by the same actors that did the radio show. It was produced by Alan Bell with John Lloyd as associate producer, his old pal. And um, Douglas Adams made an appearance as a man who gives up on modern life and returns to the sea in that. Uh, but, uh, yeah, not that great. Um, definitely probably the, the low point of all of its uh, incarnations. So we'll, we'll keep it moving. Now we get to the book that started you off, Jeff, before you went back and read the first one. Life, the Universe, and Everything was published in 1982, largely centering around Arthur and Ford with an underlying theme of the sport cricket running throughout and that is because they're searching for parts of the wicket gate to save the universe from destruction via robots on the planet cricket spelled k-r-i-k-k-i-t the book and the two preceding it ended up on the new york times bestseller list all at once and this actually weirdly enough comes from a film treatment that adams had written for doctor who called doctor who and the cricket men uh, Nick Webb, Adams' biographer, said Douglas's view of the cricket men would be similar to his view of people who resolutely decline to learn what science can tell us about the universe we inhabit. Again, which is like an arrow to the gut uh, when it comes to human beings in this day and age who are just flatly just uninterested in how, I don't know, science might save our lives in these various ways. But either way, uh, if we're talking about the uh, publishing history and the New York Times bestseller list, we have to talk about the American publishing of the book, where all the covers have this weird green smiley thing. Yeah, what? Yeah, what known is affectionately that? as the Cosmic Cutie uh, or okay. Jeremy Pac-Man. <laughs> this does not exist in any other country's publications. Why? I do I remember it uh, being everywhere. It was used in advertising. Yeah. It was used on the cover of uh, the comic adaptations, which I loved uh, back in the day. And it is just this simple green thing, a green sphere with two little spindly arms, like kind of goofy half, uh, half moon teeth and a dumb tongue sticking out. And he's just going like, Bleh! just to let you know that this is a comedy book. Um, supposedly the justification was that the American publishers did not trust that American audiences would be able to keep up with the trilogy, uh, because they had such varying different names, such as Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Restaurant at the End of the Universe. And so they needed a common visual signifier to let people know it's all part of the same thing. Uh, and it's kind of sticky, you know, it has that, it was an emoji before emojis existed. Uh, you'll see it on a bunch of tattoos by uh, uh, Gen X nerds at this point. You'll see it scribbled in a lot of notebooks over time. But here's the twist. Douglas Adams hated it. Uh, the quote uh, was, uh, this is the popular quote. That's so I funny. hate the little green blob and have spent <laughs> years locked in arguments with my publishers we have me trying to get the, rid of the obscene little thing. What is it? I mean, it has no... Because I was always wondering, like, when am I going to meet this little guy? Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> this my entire life. I just assumed that it's just like... Yeah, I guess this famous British book series has a Slimer. I guess Slimer's <laughs> going to show up on this thing. <laughs> Fans have stated, uh, tried to think maybe it was the uh, Great Green Ar Arkle Seizure. Uh, which is part mm. of one of the many creation myths that uh, is laid out in the book. Uh, you know... That there is a cosmic sneeze that uh, that will then be the unit that created the universe and will be erased by uh, what was it? Just the giant handkerchief. The coming of the great white handkerchief. The coming of the great white handkerchief. Yes, but there has never been any convincing one to one for what this is supposed to represent. 
And it really is just a shallow excuse to have a cartoon mascot, which if you were in the 80s, everything had to have for some reason. Yeah. Uh, I I should say that the edition of the book I had um, had uh, the what Douglas Adams called the 42 puzzle, which was a grid of 42 CG, uh, very Amiga graphics level cubes in a very Amiga. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Spheres. Amiga level spheres of different colors in a, a very Amiga mountainous background. And that's uh, the way the spheres are laid out and the ways that uh, the way they're colored could in various ways be interpreted into the number 42, whether you're counting in binary or whether you're using like a colorblind filter. It was just this this awe-inspiring awe image that encompass, encompassed the number 42. The logo also had, um, I think... I think it had papyrus font. I can't quite say this, but it should be noted that Douglas Adams was a very, very vocal uh, proponent of technology and computer culture and early internet culture. So it could be someone just whipped this up in 3DS Max and he was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> but apparently the the Balls edition, the, 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 the 42 spheres is not as popular in the American consciousness as the Cosmic Cutie. And most people... I hate uh, the name still. Cosmic Cutie, too. Stop saying it. It's awful. The Cosmic Cutie with his <laughs> lovable smile and wacky spindle arms. I sort of throw up on, like, my uh, dead relatives or something. Hor- horrendous. We cannot talk about Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy without talking about our good friend, the round smiley man, the cosmic cube. All right, fine. I'm punching myself in the dick right now, Jake. You made this happen. It hurts. It still hurts. I'm punching myself over and over again. They're watching me do it. We're no longer doing a podcast recording. I'm just sitting here, a grown man in his apartment, punching himself mercilessly in his penis. Holy shit, Holden. We just got 50 new Patreon supporters. I think CBT is our future. <laughs> Holden, we need to do more CBT. Uh, I'm putting pins in my scrotum. Ooh, owie. Ooh, ow. I'm a little pain pig. Ooh. <laughs> That's another 100 Patreon supporters. Oh, my God. I'm just, All right, fine. I'm still doing all right. The podcast way. is going to OnlyFans. We're just we're just a total 180 live on on tape. This is happening. Jeff, I was Jeff, thinking I'm going to need you to punish yourself. I was thinking about doing some kind of hurtful nipple play thing with myself. And, <laughs> yeah, and, uh, do it. You know. Ow, I'm, my dicker. <laughs> <laughs> all right. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
Let's talk about the text adventure game. Adams wrote this Speaking devious... Speaking of CBT. Yes, Adams wrote this devious mental health experiment filled with incredibly difficult puzzles to solve with death around every corner. He, he did it himself. The most notorious of these puzzles is the procuring of a babble fish out of a dispenser <laughs> in the hold of the Vogon ship in order to translate Vogon into English. I love that Jeff is laughing at this because he knows I know exactly how to what do I'm it. talking about. I need, you to, I need you to fully illustrate how annoying this process is <laughs> If you, I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but if you by memory can run through every step necessary <laughs> to get it. I'm going to miss something, I'm sure, because there were like, there was an insane amount of steps, but there was a dispenser and you had to get one out of the, the dispenser. And in order to do that, you had to use all these different things you've accumulated in your, in, your, uh, in I think in Ford Prefect's uh, uh, satchel. And then you had to push the button on this on this machine. I think you somehow had to unlock the machine first, and then uh, it would shoot out of the this. Uh, it would it would shoot across the um, the room, and a little flying cleaning robot would come and get it out of the air before you you had a chance to get it. And so you had to do something to like make it fall onto the ground. You had to put something. Um, uh, you hang like the towel or something in front of it, and it would fall onto the ground. And then a little floor. Uh, uh, a little floor uh, cleaning robot would come and like sweep it up before you got a chance. He predicted the Roomba. What a prophet! <laughs> you had to put like Ford's satchel somewhere, and it had to like bounce off the satchel. It became this amazing like Rube Goldberg thing, where you yeah. had to like do like ten different steps to get the this fish to ricochet off of all these different things, and then it would go all flying. parsed out in text, all using very specific instructions. That if you said put thing here, the game would be like, I don't know what put means. And you'd have to be like, push thing to west corner. It had a good vocabulary, but yeah, there were certain things. I just remember, God, you had to like, you had to distract the cleaning robots too. So you had to give them other garbage to pick up too while this was, and so yeah. like, so that when it hits the satchel, like this junk mail that you that you have to have taken earlier in the game, or otherwise you don't yeah. get to do this part. Uh, and then and the junk you mail. You had was, to pick up the junk mail. You had to remember to take your junk mail like earlier on. Motherfucker, Holden, we would have died. We would have died. And by the way, if you if you didn't do this, you wouldn't you wouldn't die, but you would definitely not be able to beat the game. So just so like you had to do this very intricate puzzle to. There was many puzzles like that, and yeah, uh, yeah, it took me ages to finish that, and I had to buy like a. There was a hint book that you had to uh, get that was. Um, I think they were called like crypto clues or something. It was like the, the whole like invisible ink thing where you take the highlighter, so it wouldn't spoil mm. it for you if you didn't want to read gotcha. like, a solution to things. But I did get one of those, and that was the only way I was able to finish that game. So yeah, that Adams loved this stuff. Uh, the Vogon thing happens right when you think you're getting into a group of the game. He said, just as the player gets comfortable in the narrow neck, the bottom drops out, <laughs> and just he just w w gleefully tortured uh, the people who played it. The game was actually, though, quite successful, selling 350,000 copies, which was a great amount at the During time. During the DOS days, that's yeah. insane. That's it's pretty platinum wild. status. So the next books uh, around the corner so long, and thanks for all the fish, was published in 1984. It had Arthur Dent arriving on a version of the Earth that dolphins have retrieved from another dimension to replace the one that has been destroyed and mostly revolves around Dent's relationship with his new girlfriend, Finchurch. Adams said, to be honest... I really shouldn't have written it, and I felt that uh, when I was writing it, I did the best I could, but it wasn't, you know, really from the heart. Jeff, it it it. Uh, well, I do know that he he wrote it after he'd returned from L.A., where they were possibly going to make a hitchhiker, like an American version of the Hitchhiker's uh, television series, and like 
every stereotype you could imagine about like how dumb that was and like every and everything right. was going on with the producers and stuff happened. And he like really hated Los Angeles and he got back to, to England and he wanted to uh, return to something familiar, he said. And also he felt like there was a lot of um, there's kind of like a, a little cliffhangery thing, not really cliffhanger, but there's certain thing implied at the end of the third book where it's like God's ultimate uh, or God's final message to his creation. He was like, well, I'm never going to tell them what the ultimate answer to the life the universe never did. Everything is. So I should at least maybe give them something. Um, and I'll, 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 in this book, I'll tell them what uh, God's final message to his creation is. And um, and also they offered him a ton of money. Sorry, I think you, you didn't really ask me for the history of it, but uh, I, <laughs> no, I have to be useful great. somewhere. The uh, no, but do I the book? I didn't read for a lot of years. That was the one I like held off on because as soon as I found out it wasn't really going to be taking like place in space and all this this world I've been familiar with, and I was still pretty young. I was like, well, that doesn't interest me. I'm not gonna. Yeah. I, I don't really care about this one. I'm probably not gonna read it. And then it, it was because like, it's a book, the worst form of entertainment. It's not giving me the thing that I want that I've already had. So uh, yeah, it was a dumb reason to like not read it. But I, but I did. Plus, by that time, Halo was out and like Art was <laughs> dead. So you know. What do yeah. You think? But I, uh, <laughs> I, um, but I did. It was like like a within like a like a year or two, and then I eventually read it, and I actually really liked it i really liked the whole change in tone and and it was interesting because i think like what i said towards the beginning is like this is the one where he does come back to the sort of like this this alternate version of the earth but it's it's essentially the same as the old one um but now he's the outsider again because he's now this this galaxy traveling person who's had all these these experiences apparently um yeah he just can't catch a break and he's just he's uh he's still kind of uh trying to find his place in the universe and he kind of does it gives him a little bit in some ways kind of a kind of a happy ending kind of a lovely ending and where he makes this connection with this woman Fenchurch who also you discover in the book kind of has like her own sort of weird disconnect from the universe and he sort of or from from the world and uh I, I won't go into all the details on that huh. right now but it but it's did it uh, feel like did it feel like it, it, it did you get a sense that of what he said like that he his heart wasn't quite as in in this one a little bit. I I don't really think that I did actually. I mean, he yeah. as Douglas Adams himself has like admitted like he hates every time he 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 writes the book like he hates it and he's like this is the last one I'll never do this again and then <laughs> yeah, he, there yeah, were yeah, five yeah. of them so um, yeah. but yeah that one um, it didn't feel I mean it definitely like it, it it there was some tonal shifts but there was there was definitely like a, a still heart of hitchhikers in it. I felt, and there was definitely some some sci-fi, you know, moments, and there was some thing, and then you you definitely do get some traveling to some other worlds, and they're just via Ford Prefect, who's like having his own kind of thing happening on the other end of the uni- uh, the other end of the galaxy, and but yeah, I thought it was, I I, I it would have been, a, I think it would have been a perfect place to end the series, right? It was but not instead, where it ended the series, but uh, it kind of gives like this, this sort of sweet thing with uh and then you get the end of it and then you get to see marvin again a little bit at the end mm. and uh, marvin kind of gets a a final moment and then you get to find out what god's final message to his creation is which is kind of brilliant and i won't spoil it here but uh um, huh yeah. so yeah because he instead in 1992 he added to his trilogy as he always refers to it uh which and in, in which two versions of trillion exist due to an alternate reality arthur being confronted by a daughter he didn't know he had and ford 
trying to halt the Vogons from using a corrupted version of the guide to destroy all Earths across parallel dimensions. And it had a sad ending, and this was largely due to Adam's personal life at the time. He said it was a bleak book. The reason for that is very simple. I was having a lousy year for all sorts of personal reasons that I don't want to go into. And did you catch that? I mean, yeah, so notoriously, this is a weirdly dark book and ends up being Douglas's last, even though it will not be the last in the series. I was very excited uh, when I picked up that copy of that book. I was like, oh, my God, more Hitchhikers. And yeah, by the end of it, I was like, oh, I feel <laughs> I'm sad now. It sort of undid what the last one what was the last one did for me. And uh, huh. although there was there was parts I didn't hate it, it didn't uh, it didn't completely ruin my day. But it was it was uh, uh, yeah, it was definitely a downer. And it was I was glad to hear him say what that was kind of coming out of like, down the road and. He, I, I, I know that there was there was plans. He was he was possibly gonna dip his po- toe back into some hitchhikers at some point. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. we never got that chance. But uh, I, I would have loved him to, to <laughs> maybe end this a little bit more, a less of a bleak note than that. Yeah, he definitely definitely died way before his time. Yeah, he was also working on the uh, uh, Dirk Wholesome Holistic Detective. Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective. Yes, yeah. which is yes. Uh, one of the great works that I have yet to pick up and it's probably due for its own episode at some point because really good. that people truly love. There's a TV series too that's supposed to be great on Hulu. I don't well. think it's really, it's yeah, it doesn't, um, from what I, I haven't seen the TV show, but it doesn't, it doesn't look uh, that connected to like the, mm. the Dirk Gently who's a much more kind of like this sort of scruffy kind of weird, <laughs> I, I won't go into dark, I, I could, Okay, sorry. Way too far into that. So, <laughs> so let's talk about the film. Uh, Douglas Adams struggled for decades to get the film into production, first visiting LA in 1983 in order to write a script for the movie based on the first book. This didn't go anywhere, and Adams wrote several revisions of the script of the coming years while meeting with different people, including Ivan Reitman, to get the film made, and Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd were considered for the part of Ford Prefect, then Ackroyd ends up diverting Reitman with his own project that would have end up becoming Ghostbusters. And womp, he, womp. he, I know, right? He compared the process of getting a Hollywood film made to, quote, trying to grill a steak by having a succession of people coming into the room and breathing on it, which I think is <laughs> hilarious. And uh, so coming off the success of Austin Powers and Meet the Parents, director Jay Roach was able to secure a new production deal via Disney, and Adams wrote a new script. Sadly, Adams dies of a heart attack suddenly in May of 2001 at just 49 years old, which is what motivated many in Hollywood to get their act together. Adams' agent, Ed Victor, said, Ironically, since Douglas's death, things have started to look better for the film because a lot of people like me have determined that this film must be made in some kind of honor to him. So Roach brings in screenplay writer Kerry Kirkpatrick to complete the screenplay based on Adams' draft that he submitted shortly before his death. Roach drops out, and brings in Garth Jennings, the director of Sing, which I did quite enjoy, actually, Sing, uh, and his production partner, Nick Goldsmith, to direct and produce. Executive producer Robbie Stamp said, The script we shot was very much based on the last draft that Douglas wrote. 
All the substantive new ideas in the movie are brand new Douglas ideas written especially for the movie by him. Douglas was always up for reinventing HHGG in each of its different incarnations. And he knew that working harder on some character development and some of the key relationships was an integral part of turning HHGG into a movie. The cast is fucking amazing, man. The cast is amazing. The quote I heard was that, like, Douglas Adams always knew that the franchise had to be adapted into a form that would fit a big American movie. So a lot of the character decisions that were made uh, were supposedly done under his directive. Uh, You know, the uh, kind of leaning into the love triangle a little bit more, Uh uh, you know, kind of futzing with the order of things. And the director and the producer, like they were known as hammer and tongs and they were behind like a ton of really dynamic uh, music videos of that 2000s era. Uh, the pumping on your stereo supergrass video with the crazy mm. giant puppet bodies was them. They did oh, stuff yeah. for like, uh, yeah, they did stuff for Radiohead and uh, Fatboy Slim, you know, that era of music. Right, right. Um, and they were working on Son of Rambo at the time, which was going to be their big uh, kind of introduction to you know, their big first major feature film. And they almost turned down the script until they got a hold of it. And it was like, oh, shit, this is actually kind of good. And they they officially got the pitch meeting during a teleconference where they set up a theater curtain around like the Cisco webcam with Disney executives that said like don't panic on it like <laughs> it's one of those legendary pitch meetings where they got the deal because they showcased how much they cared about the the property and uh, you know a lot of the movie does a lot of really great things visually uh, there's yeah. tons of great visual gags and one of the things I know a lot of people complain about the movie but. The they really handled the the absurdity of scale. I think that Hitchhikers was built on uh, when they go into the core of Magrathia and you see planets being built. When they uh, uh-huh. zoom out from uh, I forget the name of the kindly English town where Arthur Dent lives, Inns Innsport, uh, Will Innsminshire, whatever. <laughs> I'm so um, angry that I don't remember that. <laughs> but you know, you they zoom out and you see the Vogon ships and they just like kind of poof the earth out of existence uh it kind of i really appreciated the look of the movie the ship design even how they handled uh zaphod's second head with having it like kind of yeah, stick out from it, under. Like, in the neck and yeah. and you know sam rockwell incredible as 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 that character most deaf as prefect who i actually think is, is very funny throughout that film he's just very animated Really just I, I confidently does the role. Zoe Deschanel as Trillian, Martin Freeman as Arthur, Warwick Davis and Alan Rickman, both as Marvin. Uh, Warwick Davis, of course, in, in the suit, Alan doing the voice. Bill Nighy as, uh, as Slarda Bartfast, and Stephen Fry as the voice of the guide. And then, oh yeah, and John Malkovich and Helen Mirren. It is, it is such a killer cast. Also, Simon Jones, who played Arthur Dent in the BBC Radio and TV ap- uh, adaptations, makes a cameo as the Mag- uh, McGrathian Defense Systems recorded announcement. Uh, the I would say it is not like a great film, but when it's funny, I think it's really funny. When it hits the notes right, it hits the notes really well, and there are great moments in it. I, I think maybe I would say it's it's funny watching Zoe Deschanel as Trillian here. And what they do with that character, because it was at a time when the pixie dream girl 
thing was all the rage when and and twee movies were all the rage and i think that i almost wish it was made in a different time because they wouldn't have gone in those directions i don't think because they were just popular at the time which would have been a little bit more interesting but i still i find i find most deaf to be really funny i find uh yeah some of the and just like the the special effects the vogons are amazing i think that those um those giant creatures. I think I was surprised by just how like big they went with the creatures, the special effects, what you were talking about, the scale with the building of the planets. It just, they did stuff. I was like, wow, I can't believe they pulled this off. And seeing it in the theater was really good. Seeing it with a crowd was really good, I think, because it helped the humor a lot. There's something, yeah, something is, oddly enough, they were so faithful, but there's something lost in translation seeing a, you know, a pot of petunias plummet from the atmosphere in stunning CG HD that like the joke is almost ruined. Like where, yeah, the, the innate absurdity of it kind of gets a little wish washed out, but I mean, it's, it's clearly done with love. It's, you know, it wasn't a cynical cash in for sure. I don't know. It's worth it. It's free. It's on Netflix, right? You can just kind of zoop it up. I think I rented it actually, but either way I give it a watch. If you have it, I, I think you might enjoy it. And there's actually one more book to talk about. Adams had stated at one point before he died that he'd like to write a sixth book. Adams said, People have said quite rightly that Mostly Harmless is a very bleak book. I would love to finish Hitchhiker in a slightly more upbeat note. So five seems to be a wrong kind of number. Six is a better kind of number. And he had actually given up on the third book of a different series of his that we already mentioned, Dirk Gently, about a detective agency, as we talked about. And the name of the book was The Salmon of Doubt. And he was thinking of possibly, quote, salvaging some of the ideas that I couldn't make work in a Dirk Gently framework and putting them in a hitchhiker framework. And for old time's sake, I may call it the Salmon of Doubt. And so he passes away and Jane Belson Adams' widow supported a sixth installment done by uh, Eon Colfer, known for the children's fantasy series Artemis Fowl. And this was actually a match made by Colfer and Adams' agents, respectively. And they uh, they kind of put it together, uh, hoping it would work out, and it ended up um, it ended up uh, being a book that got made, which is kind of amazing. Uh, Jeff, what do you as think, the person Jeff, who I reads, need to know, yeah, what this book is is this book like worth um, the, uh, the reader's time? Uh, who, in terms of a hitchhiker book, well, it's it's not really. Um it's it, the book actually is has has a lot of things other than than sort of like the beginning of the salmon of doubt which um which in in the book itself is actually uh is still in dirk gently uh mode mm. it's like it's it's referring to like the the dirk gently characters and stuff it's really just kind of like the beginning of the book it's it goes i think how many chapters here it it, it does um only about maybe like the first six chapters or so Chapter eleven. Okay, sorry, um, but then, uh, but the rest of the book is actually just like other, just like kind of like writings, sort of like uh, by Douglas Adams. Well, you're talking, you're talking about the Salmon of Doubt. Yeah, yeah, which has got biography stuff and stuff like that. I was also asking about: Have you read uh, the um, the final book in the series, Mostly Harmless? Or I'm not not Mostly Harmless. What was the sixth book called? I thought you said it was Salmon Salmon of Doubt. That's that's all I know about. And another thing. 
and dot, another dot, thing, dot. the sixth book written by Ian uh, Colfer. You just kind of blew my mind. I didn't know this was a thing until right now. So this is so, say, okay, amazing. I guess so I'm not such an expert book. on Douglas Adams after all, am it I? It was published in 2009. You had already developed to a complete person. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I assume you've already uh, been with your wife. <laughs> but yeah, this was written. So that book was written by this guy who the guy known for Artemis Fowl as essentially pulling from some of the notes that Douglas Adam had ta- Adams had taken down, some concepts from Salmon of Doubt, and, um, yeah, made a six book. So you got to go read that, Jeff. That's amazing. Hell yes, I'm I so do. Happy. Uh, I how is it? Um, I mean, is it? I don't know. I was asking you. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. We thought we wouldn't get to this point. We honestly thought we'd run out of time before we hit this one. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I I did read the uh, yeah the, the the first couple chapters though of the in the stamina doubt of the Dirk Gently version of what was to become uh-huh. the basis for that thing. But I'm, I'd be fascinated to uh, to read it, and in fact, I definitely will. But that's, hell yeah, uh, yeah, I can't believe for some reason that that never appeared on my radar. Well, it was not written by Douglas Adams, so at well, the end of the day, that. I mean, yeah, I feel like uh, that's not that crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I've got a couple of quotes to wrap things up. I think one of my favorite things about Douglas Adams is is the way he plays in science with his humor. And this is a quote that he I think is so brilliant about how he managed to do that working off of scientific principles. He said, you start from first principles. If you can see the logic underlying those principles, however basic and simple they are, then you can see ways they can be put to work against each other. And if you can keep a, a logical grasp of that, but also have the imagination to make the jumps between one thing and another to see how they might be connected, then I think you are liable to be thinking in much the same way the scientist does. A good scientist will make complicated things seem simple because they're all actually arrived at from simple principles. But that's, so that's how I said about it, which I think is kind of amazing. Like he actually has a, there's a method to the madness. I just want to talk about just how far reaching this little radio show and this little book has kind of just spread as almost like nerve endings throughout nerd culture. Like, you know, the number 42 itself, the answer to the great question of life, the universe and everything uh, shows up. Everywhere. If there is an opportunity to have a random number somewhere, it's almost you can't resist the urge to just make it 42 as a wink to your fellow geeks out there. You know, uh, Fox Mulder's apartment is apartment number 42. Tannis in Borderlands is working on an infinite improbability drive that you need to collect 42 parts for. Uh, it shows up on in cartoons, any scene where there's a basketball game, like someone's walking around in a 42 jersey. Miles Morales, the spider that bit him is uh, genetic like test number 42. It all just keeps coming back over and over and over. Uh, Google HQ at some point was building number 42. Uh, it should be noted that uh, Douglas Adams was huge in Silicon Valley. He showed up and did speaking engagements all the time. He had his own dot com during the dot com boom called the digital village that like went bust after having worked on media properties you know it's it's had an indelible impact because again we talked about it that weird eighth grader that just feels a little bit off kilter that just feels a little bit like an outsider all found this book and all had something of themselves inside of it and it gave something back to them and it's just kind of this just subtle handshake just this wink for everyone who's ever been touched by this series. Uh, Jeff, anything you want to say before we wrap this puppy up? Uh, I think you put that really, really beautifully. I think that's actually, uh, that's 
That is great. I mean, I, I remember that was one of the first things that I, I one of the first things I like even bonded with the woman who would become my, my wife today uh, was was over Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and little references we made to that. And would you say she meeting her was like having your brain smashed in by a slice of lemon wrapped around a large gold brick? <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, it was it was. Uh, rap, uh, having my my heart smashed down. Oh. By, see, <laughs> see what I did there. Uh, <laughs> the um, uh, yeah, just I remember there was a, a couple of years ago, or a couple of years ago when I first heard when they started doing this. Like uh, it was called Towel Day, and it still goes on. And Douglas Adams, um, is it the day that he died, or is it his his, his birthday actually? And uh, and everybody would just this brings a towel and just puts it over their bag, and you just go to go to work and just like have a towel with you and uh i remember doing that and seeing other people in the subway who had a towel with them and uh it's this little this little uh this little secret club that we're all a member of that we all consider ourselves very cool for being a part of and uh at the end of the day the guy the guy really did uh i was i i got to meet him very briefly once at a book signing at the tattered cover in um in uh, colorado but aside from that never really (laughs) knew him but he had a profound impact on my life i know he had a profound impact on a lot of people's life when when i found out when i heard that he died i actually i was i couldn't control it. i started kind of like tearing up i started crying and i called my mother i had to wow. talk to my i had to talk to my mom was how like like affected because i felt like this like this very important member of my family had died and i know a lot of people did feel that that way i remember there was a, a comic strip that i read at the time, what's the thing with the the guy and the uh, and there's a guy with a the guy with a cat and a dog and it was uh, he loved Douglas Adams made a lot of references to it. Uh, I wish I could remember what it was <laughs> called, but yeah, they um, did this one strip where it was just them all just sitting there kind of tearing up and some hitchhikers imagery around them and it said it's just like you know goodbye and thanks for all the fish or thank uh, and uh, so long so long yeah. yes I said I don't know why I said so. but. Um, yeah, and I just realized this this guy um, really had a profound impact on a lot of people's lives, and um, I'm I'm better for it. I'll, uh, that's great. I, I I will wrap it up with this quote from Stephen Fry, longtime friend and voice of the guide uh, in many of his works. Douglas has in common with certain rare artists the ability to make the beholder feel that he is addressing them and them alone. I think this, in part, explains the immense strength and fervor of his fan base. So there you go. That does it. Our episode on Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Jeff, thank you again for joining us. Thank I you. I already know what to plug for you. Space Captain, Captain of Space. Did I say it yes. right? All right, good. I was like worried I would. Check it out on Amazon, the movie that Jeff made. It's hilarious. The name of our production s- company is a Douglas Adams reference. We're yes. no, T, no T Productions, which is a reference to the video game. <laughs> so yes. I won't no go into tea it. No T Productions. I, I caught that as I was doing research. I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. It is, his, his company's a reference to that. So check out Space Captain, Captain Space. It is a sci-fi comedy. So if you are a fan of Hitchhikers, I think you'll be a fan of that. 
Uh, you can catch us on Patreon if you'd like to support us further. Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Check me out on twitch.tv forward slash holdnators ho. Jake? Uh, Jeff, let me just say that I know for a fact this is the longest conversation we've had between each other where both of us were sober and it was delightful. <laughs> Hell yeah. Thank you. I agree. Obviously, uh, Holden was right. You should go to patreon.com slash whizbrew. Uh, now on the $15 tier, we're doing the Sunday study group. Where yeah. Uh, fans on Discord, we stream our research for the next week's episode, and we uh, watch movies, watch anime. We play, play a games. Hitchhiker's Guide text adventure game during the Never last again. Study group. I almost, I almost burst hilarious. a blood vessel. <laughs> if you want to watch me stroke out, then definitely join that fifteen dollar tier. Uh, follow me on Twitter at bestjakeyoung. And hey, always remember, never stop bruising and don't panic. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.